Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 22, Early Mesopotamia. This week we're going to concentrate our focus on Mesopotamia. If you pick up an atlas of the world, you are likely not to find Mesopotamia on it. In the modern world, we don't refer to the region as Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is roughly the area where you will find the modern day countries of Iraq and Syria. The name Mesopotamia originates from ancient Greek. Meso means middle. We also see this in the word Mesolithic to describe the part of the Stone Age in the middle of the Paleolithic, which literally translates to the Old Stone Age, and the Neolithic, which literally translates to the New Stone Age. Potamus is the ancient Greek word for a river. We see this in the word Hippopotamus, which literally translates to horse of the river. So Mesopotamia means the land in the middle of the river, or really the middle of the rivers. Those rivers are the Tigris and the Euphrates, which empty out into the Persian Gulf. The area of Mesopotamia is certainly not restricted to the land between the two rivers though and refers roughly to the fertile and populated areas around the two rivers from their sources to their mouths. In the modern world the Euphrates and the Tigris converge and become the Shat al-Arab river which in turn empties into the Persian Gulf. However If we go back to 6000 BCE, the Persian Gulf actually extended around 150 miles deeper inland than its current position. And the reason why it has receded is due to silting creating a land bridge. So if we look at a rough timeline of the Neolithic, we recognise the fact that the Younger Dryas took place between 11,000 BCE and 9500 BCE. The Younger Dryas was a period of time where global temperatures dropped suddenly before stabilising again. Very recently an impact hypothesis has been put forward for the Younger Dryas with the discovery of a comet crater underneath a Greenland ice cap, but this is very new evidence at this stage. What we do know is that temperatures suddenly dropped in the Northern Hemisphere in particular and we believe that this may have exacerbated conditions in which the Neolithic Revolution occurred. Certainly, in the Fertile Crescent, which is the wider area that contains Mesopotamia, agriculture and farming, metallurgy and megalithic constructions started taking place with the associated sedentary lifestyle of those humans practicing these things leading to the development of villages and then through the development of trade networks and social hierarchies 
the first towns and in turn, city-states. If we go back to the geography of Mesopotamia, you will recall that it refers to the area around the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Both of these rivers begin in the mountains of modern-day Turkey, and we can refer to this area where the rivers are near their sources as northern Mesopotamia. The two rivers in turn ultimately end up at the Persian Gulf, and we can refer to this area as southern Mesopotamia. It's important to remember these references when we start our discussion about the emergence of Neolithic cultures in Mesopotamia, as there are distinctions between the two. Halath culture. The first discoveries relating to the earliest distinguishable Neolithic cultures of Mesopotamia were made in the early 20th century. One very important site of northern Mesopotamia is Koba Huyuk, alternatively named Sakcha Guzu, which can be found in the southeast of Anatolia in the modern country of Turkey. Koba Huyuk was occupied for around 6,000 years, starting from the 7th millennium BCE, and it is one of the earliest sites associated with the Halaf culture. Now, when talking of the Neolithic period in the Fertile Crescent, historians are careful to distinguish between the Pottery Neolithic and the Pre-Pottery Neolithic. As the names would suggest, pottery emerged during the Neolithic and therefore was not a distinguishing factor of the Neolithic. Moreover, something that emerged during the Neolithic, much like metallurgy. The Halaf culture is associated to northern Mesopotamia and is associated with pottery. Halaf culture could have emerged as early as 6500 BCE. We know that they were farming, but they are most famous for their pots, and it is believed that they were able to achieve a better quality of pot purely due to the better quality of clay that they were using. The bowls, plates and vases appearing from this area during this time period were decorated artistically and carefully. Most artefacts are very eye-catching. They were also creating ceramic figurines, as we shouldn't be too surprised to find. The culture of figurine creation is something very closely linked to human history in general. The Italian archaeologist Marcella Frangipani, who was born in 1948, has written texts which concentrate on the archaeology of the earliest Mesopotamian societies and notes that the Halafian culture was very widespread but originally was believed to be localised and its success saw the culture spread out across the whole of northern Mesopotamia. The settlements were surprisingly quite small in size, but there didn't appear to be any kind of blueprint for construction. It does appear that the circular shaped building was favoured in terms of a home dwelling, but villages would contain multiple buildings of different shapes and sizes according to their purpose. And there is also a good amount of evidence which points towards 
a good degree of outdoor activity such as communal food preparation areas. Frangipani also cites the fact that there is very little evidence of there being a complex social hierarchy at Halafian sites, so it does appear that these societies are very much egalitarian, which is something we discussed during our last podcast. At some point we do believe that the societies of Mesopotamia grew so large that it was vital for there to be a class-based society in order to keep the society from breaking apart. We mentioned during the last podcast that societies that grew beyond a certain size could not be expected to behave as a unit without a common law code that needed to be administered by an elite class. The fact that Halafian villages remained relatively small would support the fact that the Halafians did feel the pressure to become class-based in their individual village societies. Other early cultures of northern Mesopotamia There are one or two contemporary societies that appear to have emerged in northern Mesopotamia in the period from 6000 BCE to 5500 BCE, a time period that we know the Halafian culture was well established. The Hasuna culture was emerging in the foothills of the very northern fringes of Mesopotamia, north of the Tigris. Evidence of domesticated animals and farming tools such as sickles points towards a confident agricultural existence and the requirement for a sedentary lifestyle. Figurines and jars of food buried with the dead point towards the spiritual encouragement of fertility and the belief of an afterlife. One of the more interesting sites associated with the Hasuna culture is Tel Shemshara in the modern day country of Iraq. Tel Shemshara has remains of pottery from this period which are familiar to the Hasuna, but also has links to another archaeological site further south called Tel Es Sawan, also in modern day Iraq. This is the type site for another culture called the Samara culture. So let's get this straight. The predominant culture of northern Mesopotamia was the Halaf, a culture which may have emerged around 6500 BCE. The Halaf culture spread outwards from its origins, but at the same time another distinguishable culture emerged to the northeast of the Halafian called the Hasuna. The Hasuna would then appear to develop a strong cultural link to the Samara culture which developed to the south. So we are talking about three distinguishable cultures emerging in northern Mesopotamia by the year 5500 BCE. This is a bit of a guess based on archaeological evidence so it may not accurately be the case but it's an educated guess. The thing with the archaeological sites of the Samara such as Tel Es Sawan is that they are clearly practicing irrigation of the river. This is another thing that we have talked about in the last podcast as something that we associate with the expansion of villages into towns and the establishment of social hierarchies and if you remember We said earlier that there was no evidence of this in the small egalitarian Halef sites. 
could this have been the beginning of the end of the Halaf culture? Southern Mesopotamia. During the last podcast, we discussed the emergence of the first city-states and we discussed one of the very first to emerge, that of Eridu. Eridu emerged perhaps around 5400 BCE. So this was around the time that the aforementioned northern Mesopotamian cultures of Halef, Hasuna and Samara were firmly established. Previous to the existence of Eridu, it appears that there was human activity in the area. And we know this due to excavations at an archaeological site called Tel El Ueli in the south of modern day Iraq. We really don't know a lot about the people of Tel El Ueli, but we do know that they were cereal producers which tells us that they were agricultural. Whether or not they were irrigating the nearby Euphrates is not obvious, but they would have certainly had to have used the water of the river to counterbalance what is believed to have been a very arid place to live. These peoples of Tel El Ueli are believed to have represented the first peoples of southern Mesopotamia, belonging to the culture which dominated this area for almost 3,000 years, the Ubaid culture. Now, I think that it's important to point out at this stage that we are still very much talking about prehistoric humans. So, in exactly the same way that we had to excavate evidence from 3 million years ago to find out about Australopithecines, the same that we have had to excavate evidence from 7,000 years ago to find out about the Ubaid. The people of the Ubaid culture did not know that they were from the Ubaid culture. The Ubaid culture is a retrospectively named culture based on similarities of archaeological excavations of various sites pointing towards some form of cultural connection. It might just be that the archaeological sites demonstrate that they were creating pots with the same kind of style, which would strongly suggest a cultural bond between them. The Ubaid culture is characterised by artefacts excavated that date to a time called the Ubaid period, and the name Ubaid comes from a Chalcolithic excavation site called Tel al-Ubaid. In exactly the same token, the northern Mesopotamian cultures of the Halaf, which is named after the site of Tel Halaf, the Husuna, named after Tel Husuna, and the Samara, named after the site called Samara, are all retrospectively named and according to archaeological evidence. And there are absolutely no written artefacts from this period to tell us anything about these peoples. What we can see is that there were interactions between the cultures. The Ubaid of southern Mesopotamia were certainly interacting with the Samara of northern Mesopotamia, who in turn were interacting with the Hasuna, which were to their north. Artifacts typical of the Hasuna and the Ubaid have been found at Samara sites. This has led historians to believe that there was a Hulaf 
Ubayid transitional period which commenced sometime after 5500 BCE. The Halaf pottery which we discussed as being an extremely important aspect of identifying cultural changes to Neolithic Mesopotamia at the start of the podcast and date from 6500 BCE onwards was now appearing to be supplanted by Ubayid culture expanding northwards from southern Mesopotamia. Did the Ubayid go on a rampage northwards from southern Mesopotamia or was a gradual integration and alteration of the Norman Mesopotamian societies taking place? We are still waiting for scholars of this period in history to provide us with more answers about this. Ubayid period It was around this time that we see the emergence of Eridu, which some have referenced as the first city. As we've mentioned, the Persian Gulf extended much further inland back in the 6th millennium BCE, so we believe that Eridu may have been very near to the coast, allowing plenty of opportunities to access water. So it was initially a very successful city, with an expanding population living in very many mud brick and reed houses covering an area as much as 25 acres. There does appear to be a general belief that the Ubayids may have developed into a class-based society during their time and this is supported by evidence found at grave sites that suggest that there were individuals held in high regard buried near the temples which appear to have also been a feature of the Ubayid culture and would have likely led to the abundance of Mesopotamian ziggurats that we mentioned in the last podcast. Clay-fired pots and figurines were very prominent during the Ubayid period and have offered us huge clues about the spread of the culture from southern Mesopotamia to northern Mesopotamia, with some sites in the north demonstrating a very sudden transition from one culture to another by the lack of an apparent transition within the archaeological layers. This could point towards a Halaf village being sacked by Ubayid warriors, but there is little other evidence for us to be able to come to such a conclusion with any sort of confidence. In fact, there is a movement to suggest that the 6th millennium BCE cultures of Mesopotamia had much more of a friendlier connection with each other, encouraging the trade of wares and of ideas. Very many settlements appear to have emerged during the Ubayid period and many of them have survived for thousands of years into the ancient periods of Sumer, which is something that we will explore in the ancient volume of podcasts. One of the most important ancient Sumerian cities is Uruk. Uruk originated during the Ubayid period with the earliest archaeological levels dating back to 5000 BCE. Uruk was further inland than Eridu and would have relied on the irrigation of the Euphrates to cultivate enough to feed its population. It does appear to have worked though. Uruk period. Historians suggest that Mesopotamia left the Ubayid period and entered the Uruk period 
in around 4000 BCE, although it is very important to state that this transition was not caused by an event, but more a modern desire to distinguish periods. It is very natural for cultures to alter over time according to their preferences and their developments. So we will look at the pottery from the 4th millennium BCE and notice that the style altered from that of typical 5th millennium BCE pottery. But that is really just down to a change of taste rather than a ceramic revolution. It is important to recognise that the people of Mesopotamia appeared to be developing more of a taste for the use of copper. So times were changing. In northern Mesopotamia, as far north as the modern state of Syria, a settlement was developing in size and power, demonstrating the cultural advances were not just limited to the south. Tel Brak, alternatively known as Nagar, is a site believed to have been occupied before the Halaf culture had even emerged, so it may have already been over 2,000 years old by the time of the Uruk period. Tel Brak had seen the Halaf culture and the Ubaid culture come and go and was now ready to interact with the Uruk culture. The city of Tel Brak was a considerable size of over a hundred acres, so it was very well established before the city of Uruk. However, it was the expansion of settlements in the south that characterises the transition between the Ubayid and the Uruk. The Uruk period is almost like the time when Mesopotamia started to take itself seriously. Gone were the hand-painted and ornate ceramics of the Ubayid, and in came the practical no-nonsense pots with very little decoration. The cities of southern Mesopotamia during the Uruk period were expanding, and they were expanding far quicker than in the north. Examples of this expansion can be found at the Uruk period cities of Kish, Gerzu, Nippur and Ur. It is believed that Uruk was most influential of all the southern Mesopotamian cities of this period as it appeared to benefit the most when studying its own expansion, hence the naming of this period. Let us have a closer look at these very practical ceramic bowls that appeared during the Uruk period as they surely carry a message with them. Humans didn't just suddenly stop wanting to have attractive looking kitchenware. There must have been more to the change than we have mentioned already. Dr Julian Reed is a British archaeologist born in 1938 and a curator at the British Museum. He has a very interesting opinion on these beveled rim bowls as they were very significant to the Uruk period. Not only do we recognise that they were mass-produced in Uruk, but ultimately throughout Mesopotamia. They were bland and unattractive, and obviously manufactured for practical purposes. Dr Julian Reed has suggested that workers may have been paid with grain, and that this would have been carried in the bowl. 
This is a very interesting suggestion, as during the last podcast we recognised that in a class-based society, anybody without skill or leadership qualities would have been consigned to the working class, and that they would have been the people assigned to plough the fields, to remove the silt from the waterways, and even to fire the clay bowls. There would have been a large working class and they would have needed to have been paid for their work. Therefore, the bowl full of grain would make perfect sense. These bevelled rim bowls from the Uruk period were found all over Mesopotamia, demonstrating the spread of the idea. Did the idea originate in Uruk? Well, we really don't know, but it was a successful idea and one of the first examples of a mass-produced product. Climate change. There's no getting away from climate change. It's like watching a film with a predictable plot, only to find there's a twist in the tale. It does appear that somebody turned the temperature up in Mesopotamia during the Uruk period of the 4th millennium BCE, The silting of the Persian Gulf started seeing the recession of the coastline back towards the ocean. Pressure on societies to create more effective means of irrigation was necessary, but still irrigation methods increase the salinisation of the land, making it harder to cultivate crops in the more salty and dry conditions caused by the increasing temperatures. As ever, when human societies face pressures, we often find out just how good we are. The need for effective administration of the cities of Mesopotamia was paramount. Those cities that could not be sustained would have to be abandoned. This may account for the expansion of Uruk culture in any case, as those societies of the Persian Gulf may have packed up and left their settlements in search of more fertile lands further north up the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. There does appear to be a migration from Mesopotamia to Chogomish on the western edge of the modern-day country of Iran, but this is also not the first instance of Mesopotamian migration in that direction, as Samara and Ubayid artefacts have also been found in this area. What we do find in Chokhamish, though, is a form of Mesopotamian accounting. Now, here we are, about to talk about something, an extremely significant point of human history, and one that we inevitably need to encounter when making the journey from the prehistoric to the ancient, as accounting is to some degree, the defining thing which separates the two. Accounting. Accounting. Let's have a look in the dictionary at the word account. An account is a report or description of an event or experience. So this is something that is vital to history. History is the reports or descriptions of events and experiences. Prehistory is called prehistory for that very reason that we do not have any accounts of what happened. It is the reason why everything that I have described in the last 22 podcasts have been based on archaeological evidence. 
when we enter the ancient period, we will start to see more and more contemporary accounts emerging, and therefore we will be describing real history. Another definition of account is a record or statement of financial expenditure and receipts relating to a particular period or purpose. Now, this is going to be absolutely vital to the class-based societies of Mesopotamia that we have been talking about that are coming under more and more pressure as a result of the changing environment. We are talking about thousands of people living in one place and having to follow the code of the city. If crops are failing, then people are getting hungry. And if people are getting hungry, then people are getting desperate. And if people are getting desperate, then they are really not going to give two hoots about their city's law code. So to keep control of the population, the ministers of the cities must govern fairly to prevent mass uproar and this may need to be done by keeping written accounts of transactions so that it can be proved that everyone received their fair share. Cuneiform So we arrive at the cusp of an amazing time in the history of our world. As the Uruk period cities grew and grew and took on more and more pressures, there would have had to have been more of a solid trade network between the cities, and this is proven by the dispersal of artefacts from this period. In order to have an effective trade network and internal distribution program within the city, you would have had to have had a record of transactions. The emergence of cuneiform is attributed to the Sumerians from the 31st century BCE. It originally started out as a set of pictograms which were inscribed onto a clay tablet using the stem of a reed which would have been sharpened for an effective inscription. Now, if I stayed true to my personal mantra about history and that things didn't just emerge one day, but evolved over a long period of time, then we can say the same about writing. Writing just appeared to advance quite rapidly during the brief but important Jemdet Nazar period of Mesopotamian history, which took place around 3000 BCE and supplanted the Uruk period. However, forms of writing certainly existed during the Uruk period and we can see an example of this with the Kish tablet, which is a piece of limestone that has clear inscriptions of pictograms which look obviously like a precursor to the cuneiform tablets that have been discovered from the Jemdet Nazar period. Kish is one of those important city-states that we mentioned earlier that flourished during the Uruk period and is also one of those cities that relied on the waters of the Euphrates. The Jemdet Nazar period is the period between the Uruk and the Mesopotamian dynastic period. The affluent cities of the Uruk period began to suffer as populations decreased and even some of the cities of northern Mesopotamia were abandoned. 
it would be the responsibility of the Sumerians to bring prosperity back to the Mesopotamians. But that is a story for volume two of the podcast, as the next time we visit Mesopotamia will be to investigate its ancient cultures. So we have set up an extremely important ancient theatre in Mesopotamia. Next week, we tackle the other obvious one, and that is the Nile Valley, which in turn will become ancient Egypt. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast, and I'm sorry it's a little later than usual. My sincere apologies. I've got a lot going on at the moment, and uh, I don't like it to get in the way of my podcasting, I must admit. So it's here now, and thank you for your patience. The first exciting announcement that I'm going to make is that we have now had over 20,000 listens to the podcast. We've only been up and running since June, so that's like five months and already 20,000 listens. Now, I don't know how that compares to other podcasts, but 20,000 sounds like a very, very big number to me. So I'm happy with that. No complaints. And I'm very, very grateful. So thank you to all of you who have listened to the podcast. I'm so, so happy. We really didn't get too much feedback at all on the uh, on the grub truck that uh, is to be found in Idaho. Now, um, we posted this picture on the Facebook page. So I'm guessing a lot of you may not have access to Facebook or might not follow the History of the World podcast on Facebook. Uh, so I apologise for that. But we still need to find out who's on the grub truck and we might even have to contact the grub truck and, and get it straight from them. Uh, John Martinson, who was the one who spotted it, um, he thought it might be an Australopithecus, but I I had reservations about that and thought it might be more like an Erectus. But then, you know, if we meet in the middle, it could be a Habilis or has anyone even considered an Agasta? So who knows? But we need you to look at this uh, character and, and help us out here. We've had many... Uh, more followers now on Facebook and Twitter, so we're seeing that people are actually discovering the podcast for the first time, so that's wonderful. I did get a message from uh, Mr. Riley Venable, who said, Thank you for this wonderful podcast. I was very interested in human evolution 45 years ago at university. Then life happened. Since retirement, I began to study physical anthropology with my own, uh, with only my own guidance. You have helped my current study immensely. If if all we ever do is uh, excite everyone else's interest in subjects, then we're, we're helping each other. We're helping to enrich our lives and our brains with lots to think about and lots to study and learn. And that's the beauty of life sometimes, that we can absorb ourselves in the information that we create for each other. So, brilliant. And I apologise for not replying to you, Riley, because uh, I've been so busy. I didn't, I didn't find time to write a response, and that's inexcusable. I will send you a response soon. Well, that's all there is to report, really, from the History of the World podcast this week. Next week, we'll be going to Egypt. We'll be setting up the pre-dynastic Egyptian area of the world. 
and uh, that should lead us nicely into the ancient volume it will be the last information podcast of the ancient and then we'll probably do a little bit of a summary and have a brief break before we go into the ancient cultures which will be another nice big fat volume of podcasts so we're really getting towards the end of prehistory now which is a sad thing and we've quite enjoyed it haven't we this little journey together um, learned a lot about different things and uh, certainly the prehistoric, the, the evolution of humans and our cousins and uh, obviously the emergence of uh, European cultures and the Neolithic. It's been an absolutely fascinating journey. So um, next week we'll try and round off the Neolithic and then uh, summarise it all. And uh, until that time until we do that have a great week everybody and we'll join up again next weekend thank you the history of the world podcast is hosted by audio boom it is available on spotify apple podcasts overcast Castbox, podcast republic stitcher and tune in you can also find it on deezer google podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.